Well, thank you so much, Christoph, for, for joining me today. Really excited to talk about a, you know, an issue that, you know, I follow for a while. And I think it's in kind of the back of everybody's mind, I think, and the sort of resource of, of water. It's, it's kind of this, this thing we deal with every single day. And, and some people have a different emotion towards it, kind of where you live in the world. Maybe, maybe you have some good feelings about it, some bad feelings about it. But before, before we get sort of get into the state of water, as we see now, tell us about your journey uh, before Charity Water. Yeah, great. Um, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for um, thanks for having me on. I am currently working at Charity Water. I'm the Chief Global Water Officer at, at Charity Water, which means I I oversee uh, you know all of our work in the field. And I've been doing I've been at Charity Water for for nine years. We we really scaled up over the course of the last decade or so. Founded 15 years ago. So I joined kind of as we were we were really scaling up. And really, my responsibility is about you know the work that we do in the field, the implementation of 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 our programs across Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. The reason I was, the reason I came to Charity Water, the reason I was attracted and to, to the organization and the mission and, and qualified to do it was because I'd spent 15 years prior working in really the same parts of the world, but in, in disaster response in the medical in the medical field. So my job then, we were working, I was working for an emergency response organization uh, that was supporting hospitals and clinics in, in many of the same places that Charity Water works in Africa and Latin America and in Asia. And, you know, we would, we would be working after hurricanes or refugee situations or earthquakes uh, to help, you know, help the population stabilize from a health point of view and then rebuild the, the health infrastructure. And, you know, one of the things that, that I experienced and saw very clearly in, in this was sort of the, the, the revolving door that you'd find in the medical system of patients. People would get sick, they would go into the hospital or clinic uh, at great expense to themselves and great expense to the, to, to the system. Uh, they would get patched up, they would get sent back to their homes, and uh, then, then they would be back with, with some other uh, sickness uh, not very long down the road. And you lose a lot of people in the process. I mean, the, the, the levels of mortality and morbidity are, are just uh, shockingly high in, in the developing world compared to, you know, what you would find here in the United States where I live, for example. And so, you know, so many of these diseases are, have their root in, in waterborne diseases and, and, and have, you know, come from people drinking dirty water. You know, so it's, it's one of the leading causes of death in, in the world. And so it was, a, you know, the opportunity to come to Charity Water and actually focus on kind of one of the root causes right. of human suffering was really, really attractive to me. When you first sort of, did you know a lot about, like, I guess you saw it firsthand of, you know, the root cause of some of the stuff you were working on, but you were you aware of, I guess, what causes that root cause, right? Whether it's it just yeah. waste issues or, or just however it might be like, what did you learn, I guess, when you first sort of, you know, thought well, about making the move? It's interesting. I mean, you know, there's, there's a backstory behind the 15 years that I spent working in disaster response, which was the way that I grew up. I had a very... Um, unusual growing up experience. So my parents were Lutheran missionaries in West Africa. And I grew up uh, until I was eight, I lived in a village in the Central African Republic that had no mm. running water, no electricity. Then we moved to a, a fairly decent sized city in Nigeria. And I lived in Nigeria until I was 17. So I spent the first 17 years of my life living in, in an environment where clean water was a challenge for the majority of the population. Uh, it was certainly something we, we dealt with at home. Um, you know, we had to filter our water. Um, my, you know, my early memories as a child, uh, my mother being very stressed out that I, you know, make sure you don't drink the water. If you, if you go out with your friends and you get thirsty, right. make sure you come home and drink the water here. And, you know, just seeing how, how, you know, my friends and neighbors were, didn't, didn't have access to clean water like, uh, like we did. So, you know, I grew up in, in an environment where 
I was experiencing this firsthand. My friends were living it. And that really equipped me and motivated me to a large degree to, to, to pursue the career that I did, get into, you know, humanitarian aid, get into the humanitarian aid sector. And, you know, it's really helped me how to create solutions in, in very challenging situations. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been helpful to me to, to be able to, to come from that background. When you talk about, you know, water, it, there's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge topic. I guess, where do we start as far as, you know, like you said, growing up, you, you do had access to like, I don't know, I guess like a water filter or a well or something like that. Yeah. Your neighbors didn't yeah. at a foundational level, like, I guess what, what can be done at the base level at scale? And I guess what is charity water doing at, at a foundational level, like at scale, is there like a step one that fits in every region, right? Every county you go to, there's like a, a, a certain protocol you follow. I mean, water touches, water is life, right? Water touches yeah, every sure. aspect of our lives. I mean, we are the blue planet, you know, because, yeah. <laughs> because uh, we have water uh, on, on the planet. You can think about water through a whole bunch of different lenses. And it really is so tied to, you know, all human well-being, all human economies, uh, all human development. So you can really look at it and become very overwhelming if you start to think about right. it in terms of water scarcity or water in in climate change you sort of need to figure out your niche in in the world in terms of what you're going to what you're going to do and charity water's niche is providing access to clean and safe drinking water to people who don't have access to it so around the world there's about 800 million people who live in settings where they don't have access to clean water. And what that means is they're drinking from uh, surface water sources like ponds or rivers or streams. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. that's like one in nine people around the world. Like it's yeah. not a small, it's, right. it's crazy. It's not a small problem. And yet it, it's inconceivable to those of us, to many of us who live in, in an environment where we've had running water for, you know, a hundred years here. <laughs> right. You know, so, so our, our niche has been, let's focus on the people who are the most needy, who are the most far behind. And within that, we really, we really focus on rural uh, communities. Mm -hmm. So really mm -hmm. remote rural communities. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is eight out of nine people who don't have access to clean water. So out of that 800 million people, eight out of nine of them live in rural areas. Gotcha. And, you know, the solutions that you need for urban areas, like big cities, those are big, like government projects where you need like literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of investments. Um, those can be financed by the World Bank. Governments will fund them because they're, you know, there's concentrations of population and, and, and political pressure there. You know, the rural areas, like nobody's, nobody's helping them. There's such a huge disproportionate need there. And when you go in and look at, let's say these, these rural areas, is it building, are, are we building wells? You know, we see all these sort of Sometimes. water filters where, you know, it's, it's a life straw, right? You can just drink it out of the lake, which is, seems like an incredible invention, but like, is there a certain, again, is there certain things you go in and say, Hey, we do this in almost every single area we go into? So yes and no. I mean, the, the, there are, the, the solutions need to be localized in order for them to be mm -hmm. sustainable and really work. Right. So they need to gotcha. fit into the hydrogeological setting, the, the political setting, the social setting. And so the way we've attacked this, and, and, you know, the world is enormously diverse. So we're working in, you know, the jungles of the Central African Republic. We're working in, high up in the mountains of Nepal. We're working in, you know, Cambodia and the, the, the desert in Mali. So, you know, it, it, you, you really need to take a, a local approach to it in order, in order for it to, to work. I would say, you know, from a technology point of view, most of the technologies that we're implementing in terms of water supply. So that would be mm -hmm. how do you get the water out of the ground and how do you get it? 
distributed and clean enough. Those are all actually really basic technologies. They are hand pumps. So an average project, we do we do a really wide range of projects, but, a, but an average project would be about $10,000. It'll serve 250 to 300 people. Uh, so imagine like a pretty remote village that's kind of by itself, far away mm -hmm. from other people. And it'll be a borehole that goes down about 150 feet into the natural aquifer and with a hand pump. And uh, you can crank that hand pump and get you know absolutely pure and clean drinking water out of it. So that costs about $10,000 to kind of solve a problem at that level. And then, you know, we do have some cases where, you know, we're building in some places like a million dollar pipe system that'll have mm -hmm. you know, 50 right. kilometers of pipes and big water tanks and, and, and whatnot. But it just really depends on the, on the geology and concentration of people and, you know, what the customs are in that area to get the right solution. When you go to, maybe not you personally now, but like when the organization, you know, finds I guess, new rural villages or, or you go into, I mean, I guess over a decade now, you sort of built a brand that's, you know, representative and, and trusted. So, it, but when you go into one of these areas, do you still have to like, like introduce what you're doing, right? You know, for, for back a little better term, like you going in yeah. and saying, hey, or obviously do they come out to you and say, hey, we need this and the organizations you sort of in parallel with you go in there and you sort of so do it's, this. It's kind of a, it's kind of a two-way street. The, the way we work is we're always working through local partners and local mm -hmm. partners would be local nonprofits that we identify. So we're out there and we find great organizations that we think are doing really impactful work. And then we work with them to like scale up and, mm -hmm. and, and become much bigger. So we're, you know, we're financing them, project managing them, auditing them, capacity building with them. So really taking the, you know, the, the experts on the ground who are from there and helping them, you know, 10x their impact. So from a starting point, you're going into a place where there's there's existing operating capacity, and there will be almost every community in, in the world, and no matter how remote they are, they know the value of clean water. So they've been mm -hmm. to neighboring mm -hmm. villages, they've been to the marketing market town, and they know like, oh man, like gotcha. we can only get clean water. So they know, they want it. What's interesting is that, you know, our process in any given village is it's almost a year long process, but to build the infrastructure, like to actually build the well, drill it or build the pipe system, or whatever that, that only, that might only be two or three weeks to, mm -hmm. to actually like do the, the, the kind of the contractor work, but we're in the village for a whole year working on all of the behavior change and getting them to really optimize this as a, as an asset that we're going to give them. So what I mean by that is there's a whole process where they're going to have to manage this. They're going to have to right. repair it. They're going to have to, you know, it's going to cost a little bit of money. So they, we, we get them to elect a water committee. Usually it's three women and three men. They agree on a tariff system. So usually that's a contribution of about like 20 cents per family per month into the maintenance kitty. So that's a whole process. And then there's a whole process around getting them to build latrines, uh, teaching them sanitation, safe water storage in their house so it doesn't get contaminated in the house. Because the reality is, I can give you all the clean water that you want, but if you don't wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, you're going to get sick. Gotcha. And, and that behavior change actually takes a lot longer than just building the, uh, than just building the infrastructure. So um, the gating factor is, is, the, is almost the human side. 
versus the, uh, the 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 construction side, if you know what I mean. I mean, Charity Ward is still a pretty young organization. If you, yeah. if you look at the scale of it, right? I mean, it's maybe so we're we're 15 more. years old. We did yeah, our, so, yeah. yeah, this was our 15th anniversary, and we founded just you know out of nowhere. You know, yeah. Scott, <laughs> our founder is Scott Harrison. And he yeah, woke crazy up one story. morning, decided yeah, he was going to do it. <laughs> crazy story, really cool story. But when you look at let's say those 15 years, I guess what is what has happened, right? As far as tangible impact or change or what we, we, we can see, like you said, we're not those who us who live in worlds where we have access to these type of things. We don't see it, but since obviously you're day to day in this, what has sort of the, the global impact been right in the change in these societies the last 15 years? I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. Like we've, we've given in the last 15 years, we've given We've given about 15 million people access to clean and safe drinking water, hmm. um, and we've scaled. We've scaled up as an organization. So now, you know, we're we're this past year in 2021, we reached over two million people with clean and safe drinking water. So, I think there's two ways to look at it, and kind of depending on whether I'm looking at whether I'm feeling like a glass half full kind of day or yeah, a glass right, half empty right, kind right, of day. Right. You know, at a global level, you're like, okay, well, 15 million people, like, you know, compared to the 800 million people who, who, who don't have access to clean water, man, I wish we'd gone like so much faster. On the other hand, like 15 million people is like, is a massive, massive number. And, uh, you know, when we, we have a long-term commitment to the communities that we're serving to make sure they're not just getting a well-built and some training, you know, in the first year, but that we're staying around in that area. We're following up with them. If they have problems, we're going to help them solve them for the long-term. So we're able to go back and see communities that we helped get clean water 10 years ago. And you look at all the kids that are, you know, 10 and under who've never had uh, to struggle for water. You know, they've never had to walk hours for water and skip school. They're not getting sick. That sort of foundational piece is just transformational for the communities because what that means is instead of spending their time walking for water or their resources like on medicine or going to the clinic and losing time doing that, like they're able to work on their farms, start little businesses, uh, send their kids to school. And that has this compounding effect, which is really, I mean, it's almost magical. Um, We've got some really cool stories on our website. If you jump on charitywater.org and and see it, we just went back to a community in Uganda that got helped. Uh, they got clean water 12 years ago, and it's just—I uh, mean, it's just a miraculous process when when people can when people can get out of this terrible cycle of dirty water, um, they can really make progress. We talked about this glaring 800 million number. Is it just money, right, to get to where you can scale from 15 million to 100 million, right? Is it money? Is it processes? Is it governments and institutions to to be more invested in you know rural areas because i always look at you know rural individuals and citizens even in america or europe with technology everybody's it's becoming so much smaller right they're they're sort of they're going to be they're going to affect economies more and more as technology embeds communities everywhere right you know then policy makers and politicians will then you know have to cater to them and stuff like that is that just a matter of time before that 15 million gets to 100 million because everything else will will sort of be much more fulfilled and you know you'll have to have more sort of government insight or investments or institutions take notice to much more rural communities like they haven't before i think money's a big big part of it and there's a lot of progress that we could make today if we had more money I don't think money's going to solve 100% of the problem because ultimately then you get into, as you said, policy and politics 
And you see that even in incredibly wealthy countries like the United States or, you know, in Europe uh, have, you know, disparities and income injustices where, you know, you do have people in living in very wealthy countries who, who are, who are in very poor conditions for some reason, you know, there are people in the United States who don't have access to clean water. Yeah. Um, yeah. You go in the South or, you know, on some of the um, native American reservations um, you can find conditions like you would find in Africa in, in, you know, in my country is definitely not a question of lack of resources. There's something else that's broken here, but I think that we can get so much further with resources. And then it's that, you know, it's that last sort of 2%, 5% of fixing the world's problems that gets really, really complicated, you know, but there's a lot of simple stuff we could do today, which is like, you know, <laughs> which is the frustrating part. Cause we could go, you know, we really could go so much faster if we had more resources. I could probably I could probably put twice as much money to work in the field uh, this year as 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 I'm going to have. And we you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna reach a couple million people this year. But I could probably just with the existing infrastructure partners, drilling rigs uh, mm-hmm. that we currently have, if I just doubled it, I could I could do twice as much. So overnight, you know, if somebody came in and wrote us a hundred million dollar check, we could probably put it to work like no sweat for bigger amounts of money, we could put it to work, you know, you know, over the course of the next five years and and really accelerate it. So I, I think, listen, in my line of work, you have to be, I think you got to be optimistic to, uh, sure. to, to be, uh, to, to be, you know, to keep coming back. I've been at this for, you know, over 20 years and seen a lot of tough stuff. I'm also just so encouraged and inspired by the progress that I do see. So I know, listen, we are going to reach everybody on the, on the planet and give everybody access to clean water at some point. I think it's in my lifetime. I'm, I'm really convinced, but it's a race against time because every day that we, every day longer that it takes, you know, that's, that's, that's days that kids are dying or people, people are suffering. And so, you know, some of these things are just a, they are a question of time, but time, time means lives, you know? couple questions around sort of, you know, nonprofits and, and water, right? Like you're not the only one doing really good work. It seems like there are really actually a lot of really interesting, you know, water nonprofits doing work everywhere. Yep. Yep. Do you, are you in contact with them? Do y'all work together and things like that? Is it, is it just very like, Hey, you do work, we do ours. As long as you don't come to our areas, like we're okay. Like I, it, I'm always interested to understand, like when you're talking scale like this, right. And a massive, massive problem like this, like you as an organization, not going to solve yourself. Right. Is there collaboration amongst other people trying to do the same things? There's a lot of collaboration and, you know, our, our, our DNA and our operating model is to accomplish our mission through partnerships with other organizations that are specializing. Gotcha. So we are working with, you know, almost all of the leading water, all of the leading organizations that would be focused on, on our sector, which is, you know, providing access to clean water to people in the developing world. If you zoom out at a global level, there's all sorts of great organizations working on water that we don't have any operating overlap with, but in our sector, we would collaborate uh, we would collaborate a lot and then figure out like just sort of who's adding value at different at different times. So we might be really good at fundraising in a particular case and you might your organization might be really good, have a really strong uh, implementation team on the ground. And so we'll kind of uh, divvy up responsibilities. So I think there is a lot of collaboration there, probably definitely a lot more than you would glean from looking at people's, you know, marketing or branding. Sure, or whatever. sure. Um, no, that's great. We're probably, I mean, we're definitely the largest 
water focused charity in, in the United States. In the UK, there's a very large organization called Water Aid, another very big player. But you're right, there's a lot of great organizations. And then there's a lot of great organizations that are just that are local also. So you won't hear right. about them internationally, but like on the ground, they're just like, they're big and they're awesome. And they're just uh, inspiring people to work with. You, you mentioned the water aquifer, aquifers before. You also mentioned like Sub-Saharan Africa and, and some places where maybe water is not as abundant, right? So how do we, how do you get water where it doesn't rain that much, right? Or they don't mm-hmm. have sort of natural water aquifers like some other parts of the world. Yeah, and 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 that's a valid point. Um, so we do a lot of rainwater harvesting. Okay. And the example I can give you is there's a there's an area that we work in in India in Rajasthan. It's it's called the Thar Desert, and it's you know one of the hottest places on earth. People live like literally in the sand, and and the water is very very deep. It's too deep to drill for. Uh, when you get the water from underground, it tends to be very salty. So people don't like mm-hmm. the taste of it. Mm-hmm. So historically, for centuries, they've done rainwater harvesting there. And the way the people have done it have been they just dig a big pit in the ground. They kind of cover it with some branches. And the monsoon season comes through for about four four months out of the year. And then it doesn't rain for seven months out of the year. So they would they would collect a bunch of water in there and uh, and 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 hope hope that that would hold them through the dry season. So the, that sort of basic technology has gotten upgraded. And now they're like underground cisterns. It's a 10 or 15,000 liter cistern that's, you know, imagine 10 feet deep and a big earthen pan, like let's say half the size of a, uh, half the size of a tennis court. And in the middle is it drains down into this huge underground cistern and that'll serve a family. It costs about $600 to build and it gives them enough water to Hmm. uh, survive the entire dry season because underground water just isn't, isn't realistic there. So, you know, we're looking at those kinds of uh, solutions, which are rooted in history and tradition and have been there for centuries, but then are upgraded uh, to, you know, using contemporary building technology to make them, you know, cost efficient and, 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 and really work well. And they're, you know, it's amazing. Like the water is absolutely pure yeah. and, and, and lasts all, all season. That was actually my next question was when you look at it, again, I don't know what it's like internally, if you get technology companies like pitching you or you're going to certain technology companies and, and looking at like, is there technology that can help you as an organization, right? Maybe do your job much better, right? More efficiently mm-hmm. if there's yep. some type of, you might see it more than I do, but is there anything technology wise that is happening where it could make you know water for those 800 million people easier to access so in terms of the water access which is you know water extraction so get, how do you get it out of the ground mm-hmm. or how do you mm-hmm. capture a spring and then and then distribution it's it's actually pretty simple you know i mean the two, the romans were doing this 2000 years right. ago um, right. you know, a hundred years ago, we figured out how to, you know, do a little bit of chlorine dosing in, in water to, to make residual mm-hmm. chlorine and kill the bugs, you know, like, so the, the, the principles are, you know, they, they focus on gravity, uh, and, and, you know, some, some, some basic ideas around uh, some basic technology around, um, you know, cl- making sure that the water is clean and safe that really serves, I'm making up a number here, but you know, let's say 90% of the need, right. And right. The world, yeah. like, needs just a basic solution. Um, you know, your more exotic, expensive, difficult to manage things like uh, reverse osmosis, desalinization plants are currently really, really expensive and mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. difficult to operate. And you know, you'll find those in in the Middle East. You'll find them in California. Right. But 
they're just cost prohibitive right now for the kinds of places that, that we're sure. working in, um, both from a financial point of view, but also from an operating, you know, just the operating requirements of, of it. So we've, we've tended to look for just existing technologies, like what's working really well and let's execute, let's execute that at scale and, and, and really well. Where we are using uh, technology, cutting edge technology is more in the operations and maintenance. So yep. how do you monitor these things? So we, right. uh, you know, we got a big grant from Google to develop a remote sensor that can retrofit on wells and transmit the data up to the cloud so that if there's a breakdown, like the mechanics in the town know immediately. So hmm. like that, yeah. that takes, you know, a dumb pump, which is a hand pump, you know, which honestly is a technology, which is decades and decades right. old. Right. Um, and, and then it becomes a connected device. It's connected to the internet and it can be really transformational, even though that, you know, the pump itself is not, not anything revolutionary. Interesting. Well, I want to kind of end on a couple things, two, two bigger questions. One would be obviously COVID and, and how that sort of affected, you know, boots on the ground, the organizations trying to, you know, deliver these projects and build these wells or whatever type of system that you do in whatever region it is. What has the last, you know, two years been like, you know, for you and the organization in these projects? Has things stalled? Yeah. Have things, you know, obviously it, across the supply chain of all kind of things, it, it has suffered. But what's it look, been like for you guys? Well, yeah, it's it's been a it's been tough. Our our partners in the field and the teams out there have just been, you know, absolutely heroic. The the long and short of it is they, you know, like many of us, have figured out how to operate in this right. crazy environment and. So today, you know, we do see some bumps in the road, some delays because of the supply chain. We do see some national lockdowns slowing things down, or we, we see teams getting getting sick and quarantining. Um, you know, just the same as we're seeing around, you know, here in the states or with our neighbors and friends. So, but but last year, last year was really, uh, I think, different. First of all, in the environments that we work in, clean water was actually the number one defense mm -hmm. against the spread of COVID. So, you know, the strategy here in the United States was keep, keep people out of the hospitals so that we have enough hospital, hospital beds to deal with the most, you know, so they were like, you know, lower the curve, lower the curve was the strategy here. But, you know, in many of these environments that we're working in, in Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia, like there is no good healthcare system. There are no hospitals to lower the curve on. So right. like, there's just no yeah. ICU beds there. So only thing you can do is to prevent it. And the main way you prevent that is through good hygiene, like wash your hands. You need water to do that. And through public health education around like stay socially distanced, don't go to school or, you know, whatever it is. And because of our programs, if you remember what I was saying about like the sort of the year long process of working with the communities around behavior change to wash your hands after, mm -hmm. after going to the bathroom, safe storage, all of that public health messaging was there. We knew how to do, you know, radio PSAs. We knew how to get to out to communities and, and talk to them about this. We knew how to like really help with that. And so our partners last year really shifted a lot of their focus into sort of COVID prevention activities while they were doing, you know, the best they could to implement the projects. So they were doing that kind of like as an emergency response thing. And now this year, all that's been like incorporated and kind of mainstreamed into just like the way that they do business now has a huge like sort of COVID prevention uh, component to it. So we're, we're really encouraged that, you know, the, the access to vaccines is, is increasing a lot around the world. It still has a long ways to go, but, you know, more and more people in the places that we're working in are finally getting access to vaccine and protected against COVID. Uh, with all of its ups and downs, you know, the people have been, people around the world have been resilient and stepped up to it and done stepped up and done their jobs you know and it's been it's been humbling 
I don't know how to really ask this, but like, was there a sort of not calm is a, is a bad word, but like preparedness, maybe unlike, you know, America or, or like Canada or Europe, because a lot of these countries kind of deal with diseases quite often, right? And sort of outbreaks is and, and just disease at scale. They sort of, it seems like they, they deal with it quite often. Yeah. The example that I saw was, you know, if you recall, what is it? Seven years or so ago, there was there were some big Ebola outbreaks in right. Liberia and, and yeah. Sierra Leone, and that that triggered a massive like public health response across all of Africa. So if you were traveling in Africa, I mean, you'd be on the other side of the continent. They would have public health officials at the airport. They would be taking your temperature. They would be there would be educational signs. There would be uh, hand washing stations at every sort of public area. You know, you go to bus station or a, an office. There'd be a hand washing station with like chlorine. I, I think there was, you know, there was a, a different level of experience, you know, in the States. Sure. We never, we never yeah. experienced this kind of thing. Right. And, and so people didn't know what to do. People didn't know who to trust. And I think, I think in that sense, there was a higher level of preparedness, uh, sadly and ironically, right. um, in some of the, in in some of the developing world than there than there was here. And and uh, you know, luckily, you know, the numbers have been have been reasonable so far. We just hope it continues that way. So I'll end on a question a little bit about about the future. And I know we kind of talk about you know the first fifteen years of the organization, but if we look at the next decade, what does success look like for you uh, and the organization? Do, success is so hard to gauge. And I know internally, you probably look at, you know, metrics and, and certain things you, you guys want to hit, but it, just, just from like, maybe an emotional standpoint, a human level, like, what are some of the sex successes and goals you hope to see, you know, perhaps over the next decade? Our most important case indicator, the one that matters the most, and the one that only matters at the end of the day is how many people we serve, how many people we're mm -hmm. able to help get access to clean and safe drinking water. And that's really a direct function of how much money we're able to raise. You know, we have an amazing group of donors who pay, who specifically choose to pay for all of our operating expenses. So like my salary and trips right. to the field and audits. So they, it's about 130 individuals or families who would say, you know, I, I don't want my money to go to the field. I want my money to just pay for all of the, you know, charity waters operating the operations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So hundred percent of the public's money goes to the field and that, that money really is touching lives and, and, and making a difference out there. Our real quick, our, that was kind of an innovative model. It was right, a really, it innovative model. Like, that was kind of unheard of a little bit. And it's not easy. You know, it's, 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 it, we, we, we never ever take it for granted because, you know, to find people who kind of buy into the mission and the vision with us and who are ready to like kind of come on board as team members that is you know kind of like investors in in the organization helping us build this movement um it's hard it's hard to find those people and yeah. um and and it's an amazing thing that they do for you know all of the rest of us who who donate and then have this sort of pure play of like i don't have to worry about where my money's going or right. not going. like right. i know exactly where my money's going yep. you know so that's pretty unique our goal for the next our high level goal is just to grow as much as we can. You know, like we we know how to help people. We've got a great mechanism. We could do so much more. But concretely, what we're trying to do over the course of the next five years is to reach the next 15 million people. So it's taken mm -hmm. us 15 years to right. reach 15 million people. We're going to try to do that same amount in a third of the time. So go three times as faster. 
as fast. And that's going to take, you know, that's going to take some real, some real creative thinking. I mean, one of the things that I like the most about my job and, and, and love about charity water is just like, it is the continual startup model. I mean, today feels like, today feels like day one, you know what I mean? Every day. (laughs) Um, No, that is, oh yeah. There there are definitely some days where I wish we, you know, I could step off the gas, but that's what my teammates, you know, come in and uh, they, they, they push forward for a little while. And then I get my, uh, get my breath back and we move <laughs> forward. But um, it's, it's an exciting way to work, which is just like, how do I give it like a hundred percent every day and, and try to just grow, grow, grow for the good of humanity, you know, in a, in a way that really is sustainable and makes sense, not just for growth sake. I'd like to piggyback off that real quick is I love the idea. Cause I always look at, you know, business can scale really well. And I talk to a lot of people using business you know, to solve societal issues, right? Because business can scale much faster than nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, that has been like a real issue, I feel, from yeah. a nonprofit perspective. It's just, it's just very hard to scale. Yeah. What is that a, do you think that's like an organizational, you know, philosophy? Is that something that can be taught or, or sort of implemented into other organizations within other sectors, whether it's food, education, whatever it may be? The idea of like looking at nonprofits, and scaling like business, having that same mentality feels like we can get a lot more stuff done. You know, like you said, it took us 15 years to get 15. We want to do that. We want to do that in five now, right? That's incredible. Like, is there advice or tips that, that you would give other sort of nonprofit executives or leaders about having that mentality or what they can do to do that? Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah, I know. It's so hard. It's it's not, it's not just, it's just not just nonprofits. You know, if you look at any, sure any business segment in the United States, take New York City, 90, something like 98, 99% of all the businesses in New York City have less than 50 employees. So, you know, the world is made, anybody getting to scale, uh, regardless of whether you're a tech company or a car dealership or a, you know, dry cleaner, like getting to scale is really, really hard. And I think, you know, it does, it does have a lot to do with a leader setting the pace and saying like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to get there and really let's just like never giving up. And that's, you know, it's one of the fun things about working with Scott is he's just, he's just absolutely relentless. <laughs> and as soon as we hit one milestone, that is like so far in the rear view mirror, we're already looking for the next one. And so I think, um, you know, ultimately when you look at organizations at scale, uh, leadership plays just an, such an enormous, enormous role in setting a vision, getting people to come, come, come along with you on that vision and, and getting the buy-in and, and just believing in stuff that you shouldn't necessarily believe in because it's sort of incredible, you know? So, so, so what we've learned is if we set high goals, we, we will achieve them. And even if we don't achieve them, we're going to get close and we'll achieve them next year. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's, there's something about setting goals, which are a little audacious and you'll get there in time. You know, Scott's, it's one of the things I've learned from Scott. <laughs> it's, it's more important that we get there than how fast we get there, but we're going to try to get there as fast as we can. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Gustav. This was a great conversation. Amazing to get your thoughts and perspective on, you know, the sort of state of, of water right now. And, you know, it's, it's such a brick by brick process, right? Like, I mean, anything else to get water to 800 million, clean water to 800 million people is going to take a very, very long time. And especially to do it the right way, you know, yeah. we're talking about scale, but get to scale appropriately and scale correctly that's even you know harder yep. uh so so best of luck to you and the team and keep up the great work great thanks so much grant thanks for having me on 